So this morning, I want to go back to the metaphor that we looked at last night, that of the arrow, and try to bring that into our actual experience as we sit here. It's a nice story, being shot by, well, it's not a nice story, but it's a, it's a, it's a simple story um, that works very well, I think, in offering us a sort of a picture, a frame, in which to understand broadly what we're doing. But with most of these metaphors, if we probe them a little bit more, we find that they're actually talking about something very specific and real and concrete that often is difficult to capture in purely psychological terms. And here I think we find ourselves calling on the language of, of mythology. So the idea of being struck by an arrow and that becoming a kind of, uh, in, this, in the story of the Buddhist story, a kind of life-threatening situation. Again, another parallel with the, um, the raft parable, the arrow parable. They're both, as someone said, life-death situations, quite explicitly. What they're referring to is something of equal import. Um, it may not literally be a life-death situation that we confront, let's say, on this retreat, but it points to the fact that what we are working with on a retreat like this is something we take with utmost seriousness. In Zen, they call it the great matter of birth and death. In other words, we're, we're engaging with our life um, as a matter of great urgency and great passion and great curiosity and great bewilderment. So that's, I think, why these parables are framed in such stark life-death terms. But the utilization of the symbol of the arrow we find also in our own culture. Possibly the best example is that of Cupid, the arrows of Cupid, or eros in Greek. And um, I was looking up some stuff around Cupid last night. And um, apparently his symbols, the two symbols he carries is an arrow in one hand and in, sometimes he carries a torch. In other words, in those days, not an electric torch, but a piece of wood with a flame. And the reason being that because uh, the, the arrows of desire, as it were, particularly erotic or sexual desire, both wounds us and inflames us. In other words, it's painful to be, in a sense, in the grip of these desires. Uh, it's also very wonderful, too, but there's an element of pain when you're in love, for example. And also, it somehow f it inflames you. Uh, you. You heat up. So again, in a completely different context, we, um, we come across uh, images, both the image of the arrow and the image of the fire, 
which the Buddha likewise compares greed, hatred, delusion <clears throat> to fires. We get inflamed. Um, we find this um, also in the Buddhist imagery, not just with the story I told last night, but with the whole idea of, uh, of Mara and the Buddha's conquest of Mara. Mara being the, the sort of the, the personification of, of reactivity. And when the Buddha overcomes Mara, symbolically, then it, he's depicted as sitting serenely on his seat and surrounded by a halo of demons which are firing arrows at him, threatening him with spears and axes and other weapons. And yet the Buddha's able to just be there. It's not saying that these things don't exist anymore, but he's entered into a new relationship with these things whereby they can no longer, in a sense, derail him or somehow uh, you know, overwhelm him. And that's not just about the Buddha, that's about us. Our own capacity to be awake and alert and mindful and compassionate and wise and all these things is constantly under attack from other powers, let's say, uh, that can derail us, our fears, our attachments, and so forth and so on. It's also worth noticing that Mara is often depicted um, or called uh, Kamadeva. Kamadeva means the god of desire. In other words, Eros or Cupid. And Mara rules over the Kamaloka, the realm of desire. So again, these, these Greek, Roman, Buddhist ideas cross over, probably because they are ways that the, the human imagination uh, collectively comes up with the same kinds of imagery, no matter what um, part of the world it finds itself in. Another arrow image. This is from Shakespeare, a passage you will all know well. To be or not to be? <laughs> that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Now, Shakespeare knew nothing about Buddhism, but it's quite striking here how he phrases this great dilemma, to be or not to be, immediately by talking of whether it's nobler to simply accept the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. In other words, all of the stuff that assails us and strikes us like arrows. A sling is a, is, is, is a piece of cloth with a stone that David used to kill Goliath. In other words, it's another weapon. And we're constantly being battered by these things. So is it nobler to say, yes, this is my life. This is what I've got to work with. Or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. That's the other alternative. 
uh, to get rid of this stuff, to destroy it, to overcome it. So this is the dilemma of Hamlet. But it's also the dilemma of you and I as we sit here in meditation. Do we accept, do we suffer these things? Do we accept them and, and work with them and recognize they're always going to be around? They're always going to be? Or do we try to delete them, get rid of them? And this is an argument that's bedeviled Buddhism since the beginning. But let's take the image even more, more specifically. To be pierced by an arrow. Um, nowadays, it might make more sense to say to be shot by a gun. To have a bullet inside one. To have an arrow inside one. We feel as though something, a foreign object, has, has entered into us. Something that's not really me. But it's entered and it's taken hold. It's painful. And at the same time, it leads to a loss of vitality. Um, in the case, literally, as the loss of blood. So we've, got a, we've been shot by an arrow or a bullet. We're lying on the ground. We're in pain. We might be losing consciousness because we're losing blood. We're losing our lifeblood. We're losing our vitality. So is this a, a good image uh, for actual existential states of, 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 of experience? Jung, again, whose work is, is, is in the background to a lot of what I'm saying, regards neurosis or sickness of the mind as an autonomous uh, complex in the psyche, in, the, in, in the, the wider sense of our consciousness. An autonomous complex. In other words, it's something that seems to operate independently of our will and volition. It it attacks us. It, in the old language, it's like an arrow being fired. In Jungian psychology, it's understood as an autonomous complex in the psyche, um, which, in a way, takes control over our rational mind, over our volition, and it causes us great pain. Uh, it leads us to go into psychotherapy. Uh, compulsive anxiety and panic and many other such things are things we have no control over any more than we have control over the bullet or an arrow that is fired at us. And likewise with Mara, uh, with greed, hatred, delusion, these autonomous complexes that burst into our, our minds without our choosing them to be there. We don't want to feel greedy and lustful and uh, angry, when we're on, especially if we're on a retreat, but it happens anyway. These things just come about. So um, we can understand it that way as well. That we're losing, as soon as we're under the control of those things, it's as though we're losing our lifeblood. Something has, has, um, has uh, 
is leaking out. We can't give the totality of our attention to what we really are seeking to do in that moment, to be aware, to be conscious, to be present. We're constantly taken away from that. Uh, Shantideva, 8th century Mahayana Buddhist writer, says that, uh, compares the klesha, again, to arrows. And he says, when the arrow of the defilement uh, penetrates you, um, very quickly its poison spreads through the whole system, through the circulation of blood. So again, if we, the pra- the, one of the aims of this practice is to catch these arrows the moment they impact. And when they're still you know, just uh, present, before they've been built up into a big charge or storm, we have a better chance of, of working with them, of letting them go, of not getting caught up in their story. And that can, you know, in a sense, minimize the, the overwhelm that they have. The problem, again, is not that um, these kind of reactive uh, events cause us suffering. Of course, they do, by and large. But arguably the real problem is that they, um, is that they prevent us from being fully alive. Uh, when we're under the, the power of these things, we're kind of restricted, we're blocked. It's a hindrance, as the... Buddhists say, an obstacle. It prevents us from from really being fully what we could be. So how do we remove the arrow? Again, the metaphor suggests that we have to take it out. Um, And that's, I think, where the metaphor begins to be less helpful. Because if reactivity, desire, hatred, all this stuff is simply a naturalistic consequence of our own evolution, then these emotions and instincts and impulses are built into our limbic system. So I've been told. The reptilian brain, perhaps. We're not going to be able to remove that part of the brain uh, as though that was the arrow and we just have to chop it out of our head. it would require a lobotomy of some kind. And I don't think that's the way to go. Um, So what, therefore, does it mean to remove the arrow? Go back to the story we had also last night of Sunakata, the Buddha explaining the process of medical treatment. He says you need mindfulness as a probe, and wisdom as a scalpel or a knife. That's, they are the tools of your operation. Now, with mindfulness and wisdom, you're not uh, seeking to somehow get rid of these things, but you're seeking to understand them. You're seeking to, first of all, pay attention so that you notice them when they first occur. That's mindfulness being alert and attentive and present. And then you need to somehow look into their nature. What is this thing that's going on in my 
experience. And you'll notice that it's just a transient play of thoughts and emotions and feelings that have risen up. And if you just observe them and stay with them, embrace them, they will, over time, just fade away. They'll fizzle out unless you reinforce them. And this is basically the principle behind all mindfulness interventions in therapy. Very simple idea, but it's not necessarily easy to apply in practice. But what the story we heard last night suggests is that mindfulness and understanding can initially give us a a freedom, a breathing space, a liberation from being overwhelmed by these things. But it also requires that we adopt another lifestyle. In the metaphor, it had to do with cleaning the wound, making sure all of the poison's been extracted, dressing the wound, following a certain diet, following a regime of hygiene, avoiding dusty, you know, hot places and so forth and so on. In other words, the whole process is compared to that of a medical intervention that then is followed through by adopting a healthy way of life. In one of the early Buddhist texts that's not found in the Pali, but is preserved in a Tibetan translation, there's a story of one of the kings, Pasenadi, complaining to the Buddha that he and his followers were too easily mistaken for doctors, traditional Indian doctors, working probably with some form of early Ayurvedic medicine or something. And that's a very telling little story, I think. Uh, In other words, it's possible, I feel, that this medical analogy... Dharma is like medicine, wasn't just an analogy. The the Buddha and his followers might actually have been involved in some kind of therapeutic work. So that, I think, is a way we might understand the working, letting go of reactivity. is not about getting rid of anything, because that's, it's sim- reactivity is simply part of who we are. It needs to be accepted and embraced as such. But it's coming into another relationship with it. It's learning to be more mindful and present of when it happens and to see it intelligently, wisely, as, as transient, conditional, contingent, and not really me. It's anatta. It's not me. These voices that are piping up in our heads, telling us to do this and do that, are actually just happening. They're not my deepest personal wish. They are voices, words, ideas that come to us. They're not our conscious choices for the most part. But there's another layer here um, of reactivity that I want to look at this morning. And that is the reactivity that is associated with moha, darkness, confusion, delusion, 
It's a difficult word to translate. And as I mentioned last night, we could perhaps helpfully think of these as, as our uh, compulsive uh, tendency to hold on to views and opinions. So views and opinions are also, in a sense, arrows or traps or entanglements or toxins even. They're toxic. They, once we're committed to a certain opinion or view about myself, about someone else, about the political situation, about whatever it might be, um, it might afford us some advantages. It might make things clearer. But at another level, it's also a closure. There's something final about a belief or an opinion. We stick to it. We don't budge. It's non-negotiable, or at least that's what it feels like. And in fact, it might be so obvious to us that this belief is true that we can't imagine anyone thinking otherwise. So what would then be the remedy for opinion, views and opinions? How might, in our practice here, could we uh, work with this and perhaps loosen its grip? Well, this leads to bringing into our practice a kind of questioning or inquiry. If you hold your life as a question, you're going to immediately be releasing your hold on certain opinions. To question is to basically say, I don't know what's going on. Um, I don't know who I am. Um, this world is profoundly mysterious and strange. Uh, any opinion I can have about it is at best tentative. It might be useful. But in a retreat situation like this, we can let go of those views and opinions. And we can just come to rest in the sheer mystery of life itself. And our um, almost infinite ignorance as to what's going on. I think Einstein said once, there are two things, there are two things that are infinite. The universe and human ignorance. <laughs> so what I'm going to suggest today is that we explore a practice that is drawn from the Zen tradition. Um, and it's quite simple. It's just to ask the question, what is this? What is this that's going on? What is it? Without uh, the idea that if we meditate well enough, we'll suddenly get the answer. It's about letting go of answers. It's about letting go of certainties, opinions. And it's returning again and again and again to the power of questioning. What is this? I don't know. You can alternate those two questions. The, the questioning practice has its, well, this particular questioning 
practice has its origins in 8th century China. It's a story of two monks, the patriarch Hui Neng and a young monk called Hui Zhang. Hui Zhang comes to see Hui Neng and Hui Neng says, where have you come from? And he says, I've come from Mount Song. And then Hui Neng says, but what is this thing? How did it get here? To which Hui Zhang was speechless. In other words, Hui Neng started with a nice, convenient, social inquiry, where have you come from? And then he turns the tables on this poor young guy and says, but, yeah, but, but, but what is this thing? How did it get here? He's not talking now about any practical information. He wants to know, but yeah, but who are you really? What's really going on here? And that's the quality of this kind of questioning. It's to bring the mind to a stop and just allow ourselves to be astonished, amazed, perplexed by the fact that we're here at all rather than not here at all. Which is a, which is a very you know, central question in Western philosophy. Why is there anything at all rather than nothing. We find it in Leibniz, we find it in Heidegger. If we go further back still, we find it in Socrates, Plato. Socrates says that the beginning of philosophy is wonder, the capacity to become a question for oneself. And I think the reason, in a sense, that we are not all philosophers or don't think of ourselves as philosophers, is because we've lost the capacity to wonder. We've lost the capacity to ask questions. So this meditation that I would suggest we explore today is about trying to recover our capacity for wonder, our capacity for questioning. And the way to do this is quite straightforward really, you stay with what you're doing already, whether you're on the breath or you're attending to the body or you're generating metta or whatever it is you do. And then when the mind becomes a little bit more still and quiet and clear, then very gently ask yourself, what is this? just once, and listen to whatever comes up in response. Maybe nothing. doesn't matter. But try to rest in this questioning as though the questioning was suffusing every cell of your body. It's an embodied inquiry to the point that once you get that kind of visceral curiosity, you don't need to keep asking the question. You can just allow your whole existence to be more questionable, more fragwürdig, worthy of being questioned. And then just feel and sense that quality. In one of the early Chinese uh, Zen text, it says, 
that you should question with the marrow of your bones and the pores of your skin. Now, clearly not literally, but we know what that means. We know that this is a gut-feeling kind of question, a felt-sense kind of questioning. It's not an intellectual question. The problem, though, is that because of the way we're brought up and educated, if you're asked a question, you give the answer. And that's success. That's the best kid in the class, is the one who gets the right answer. And it's very likely, if you've not done this kind of meditation before, that you ask the question, and then your clever inner school child comes up with all these brilliant zenny answers. Let that go. Let that go. We're not interested in your clever answers. We're interested in can you get to question more deeply? Can you begin to value uh, the quality of puzzlement and wonder and curiosity uh, as an integral part of your meditation, but also more importantly, as another way of relating to yourself and the world in your life as a whole. Can you really embrace this quality of, uh, of questioning? And this, I think, is the deeper sense, the truer sense of skepticism. Very difficult to put those ideas together because we think of skepticism largely as superficial and negative. But actually, that's what the Greeks meant. It's holding uh, this uh, deep sense of questioning and suspending epoche in Greek, suspending all opinions and judgments. That was the approach of Pyrrho, the founder of skepticism in the 4th century BC. So this practice is very close to that. It's a practical form of, of skepticism. Uh, holding on to questions, deepening questions, and letting go of opinions and uh, answers. So letting go of reactivity here becomes letting go of our cleverness, letting go of our insistent uh, narrative in our heads that wants to pin things down. So much of what goes on in our distracted mind is effectively uh, an endless reaffirmation of me. Your distracted thoughts are usually stories about yourself and how you're going to deal with problems in the future, how, how you suffered in the past, but it's all circling around and reinforcing the sense of me. So to notice that, to be mindful of that, to understand that this is just how the organism functions and to not get caught up in being right, being wrong, having the right opinion or wrong opinion, but just coming back again and again and again to what is this? What is this not focusing on a particular object, a pain in the knee, what is this? No, it's more 
a more global uh, sense of our experience as a totality. Being here in the world, hyphenated, one unbroken, seamless experience. What is this? And allowing that questioning to suffuse your mindfulness, your metta, your uh, awareness of feeling tone, with the quality of curiosity, of, of not knowing, of puzzlement and of wonder. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.